Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Stress is our natural reaction to physical or emotional pressure, and it covers everything from too much work to being tortured. But what actually goes on in our bodies and minds to cause stress? And how does stress affect our memory, our mood and thinking? This month, Vince Walsh and an expert panel of Joe Herbert, Julie Turner-Cobb and Shane O'Mara explore the science of stress. They're going to speak for 15 minutes each. If they go on for longer than 15 minutes, shuffle uncomfortably. Uh, Make them know it because they're eating into your time to ask them questions. And the real point of tonight is so that you can have access to the open minds of three three experts. So, Joe, please. Good evening, everybody. Um, As you heard, I'm going to talk about stress. I'm going to begin with the traditional thing that all scientists begin with, with what you mean by. It's important, actually, because stress is a widely used word, and it's actually very much misused. And let me tell you a bit about how someone like me thinks of stress, and which may or may not be the way you think of it. Um, the, first about, the first thing about it is that it's along various dimensions. You can have physical stress, you know, no food, or, or dehydration, or hot and cold temperature, and these are real stresses, and they're, and they're important ones. Of course, you have personal stresses, which means things going terrible in your life, like a loss, bereavement, for example, or um, a, a loss of a job, this kind of thing. These are all the stresses. Then there are social ones, like, for example, relationships and uh, friendships and your status in the community and so on and so forth. And the first point to make of piety, of course, is these aren't separate. They overlap, of course. You can see that, can't you? And can overlap. Now, the important thing about a stress is that it isn't actually out there, it's in you. Nothing is actually a stressor unless the body regards it as such. So it's a highly personal, individual event. And whilst, for example, a high temperature may be a stress to most people, there are some people, of course, which it is not. And the same goes for starvation and so on. And the same goes for bereavement and all the rest of it. So it's an individual thing. So the important important, um, uh, provision here is the perception. Now... This is the big problem here because this is the external event and this is the response. And people use stress for both the external event and the, and the response, and they're not the same. Engineers call this strain. It's a much better response. But biologists and, and medics don't talk about strain. They talk about stress responses. And this goes, again, across three different uh, other interlinked uh, 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 mechanisms. There's the physiological, what your body does in hormones and things and all talk about this in just a moment. There's emotional, in other words, how you feel about it, and there's cognitive, which is really basically what you do about it. And the result of this is, of course, that you adapt or not. But even if you adapt, there's usually a cost, even if you don't know about it. And that's the point about stress. Even a successful or apparent successful adaptation may imply a cost. Okay, now... One particular sort of stress is what's called a life event. And they can be either acute or chronic, or more commonly, acute or chronic. For example, poverty or deprivation is a chronic stress. Losing your house, which may result from poverty, is an acute or chronic stress, and so on. The important thing I want to talk about is this. I'm going to link stress with depression, because that's my focus this evening. And the important thing is here is that most episodes of depression are actually 
preceded by an identifiable stress. Not all of them, and there are reasons for that, but the converse is not true. And that means that there must be some mechanism for resilience or susceptibility to stress. And the question is, what do we know about that? Here's an example of what might happen. This is a graph here. This is the risk or the, or the risk of getting depressed, and this is time. And what has happened here is that in 207 women, either they've lost their husband or their husband has had a serious heart attack, so he's in danger of dying. Now, three important things here. First of all, about 20 weeks later, there's a great bulge of mental response. So the first thing is, what's happening in that interval? The interval varies. Some people say it's less than that, but there is an interval, and that's what happens. So what's going on? Second thing is, as I said to you, not everybody does it. In this case, just over a third showed some kind of mental disorder here. And the third point is, it wasn't all the same mental disorder. Some were depressed, some were an anxiety neurosis, but of course the two, as you know, can coexist. All right, so what do we know about what happens? The brain. This is what I do, the brain, okay? And this is where it all happens, because as I've said to you, stress is a brain event. If you're stressed, it's because your brain is in a particular conformation. Now, the rephrase, this is a cross-section of the human brain. This bit here is called the cortex, and it's the kind of, you know, the kind of thinking bit, the intellectual bit. And that recognises the situation, because it is the basis of perception. Now, it doesn't actually necessarily imply or assign a value. It just analyzes the situation. What is happening? There's somebody in front of me with a little L-shaped piece of metal in his hand, and I recognize that as a gun. Right? That's what the cortex does. Down here in the amygdala is the response, the emotional, which in this case is, is it dangerous? Incidentally, the amygdala can also do the opposite. Is it pleasurable? But I'm not here to talk about pleasure. We're here to talk about pain. <laughs> Is it dangerous? Now, then what happens? Well, another part of your brain, the hypothalamus, organizes the response to it because your body needs to react to this and quickly. And that happens down here. And the hypothalamus does it by sending a signal, a chemical signal, down to the pituitary gland here. And the pituitary gland sends another chemical signal down to the adrenal glands these sit in your abdomen, just above the kidney side, okay, and the, the adrenals do what is necessary. And that is, produces masses of this hormone cortisol. And that's where our story starts, cortisol. And I'm showing you that because that's a steroid. All steroids look like that. Now, what makes one steroid different from another steroid? This is cortisol. But, of course, heart, the whole audience here has another steroid called testosterone in it, males and females. Uh-huh. And the ladies and the men have estrogen, and the ladies, some ladies anyway, have progesterone. They're all steroids. Now, what, ma- what matters are these things here. These are oxygen and um, uh, hydrogen atoms. And if you rearrange them, you change the function of this molecule. Quite astonishing. So it's a very simple molecule compared with a protein, which is molecular weight of thousands, this has a molecular weight of about 300. That's nothing. And yet, it's one of the most powerful substances we know. 
Why? Without cause, ladies and gentlemen, you're all dead. And in fact, Addison's disease, Thomas Addison was an 18th century physician from Guy's Hospital, down the road here, um, uh, described it. And he didn't know why they all died, but they all did die, his patients. And he noticed that they died, they all had great chunks of tuberculosis in their adrenals. Those days, tuberculosis killed one in every four people. You know that, it did. Anyway, uh, and of course, nowadays, people with Addison's disease don't die because they're given cortisol. But if, they, if you weren't, they weren't. So it's, it's important. Has a marked day rhythm, which I won't go into. This is something we'll come back to. Women characteristically have about 20% more cortisol in their, in, their, in their blood than men. Does it matter? Wait. <laughs> Stress. It is, as we've seen, the, one of the most, not the, not the only, but one of the most dramatic moments, one of the most dramatic events in response to stress. It, you need it. People with Addison's disease have to increase their cortisol dose if they get ill. Otherwise, they get very ill. So you need it. Okay? Whoops. That's not right. Um, we know from a whole variety of studies, both in normal people and people given steroids, that steroids, cortisol, can predispose you to depression. It can cause depression. And it does in many people if you give them high doses for a long time. Okay, so that's cortisol. Now let's get really trendy and talk about genes. Here's a gene, a very interesting gene. It's a gene to do with serotonin. Now, as you know, classically, uh, serotonin is related to depression uh, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into now. But let's look at this particular gene here. Now, this gene exists in two forms a long form and a short form. And about 25% of you have two longs, 14 have two shorts, and the rest of you have a long and a short. Do you know? No. Do you care? Well, you might in a moment. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Look, this is a study done, a very, very famous study, actually, done as the most cited uh, paper in the whole of behavioral genetics. And this is why. It's, this is a, a study on about 1,000 young people and they, and they did two things. They, they determined their, their genotype. And secondly, they asked them three, two questions. How many life events did you have in the last five years? And have you or are you depressed? Now, those with no life events, the gene did nothing. But as the life events increased, in other words, their lives became more stressful, those with the short, two shorts had about a, between a 30 and 40% of depression, whereas those with two longs well, it barely increased, and those with, the, with half and half were in the middle. A fascinating, fascinating example of a gene time environment interaction, which we all talk about, but we very rarely see with such clarity. A brief mention of childhood. Now, Julie's going to talk much more about this, so I'm not going to say much about this. I just want to very briefly uh, make the fact that childhood. Um, uh, uh, adversity comes in various forms. Here they are. Again, they overlap. And there are, there are prominent consequences, uh, which, I, which, again, I'm sure Julie will talk about. Uh, we all know about that, that early, early uh, adversity has long-standing effects on later development. The question is, why? Why is the infant brain, the neonatal brain, the young brain, so apparently sensitive to adversity? Now, just recently... Just recently, we've had an ink, an ink, uh, one inkling of why this might be, and I have to introduce you to the very modern and contemporary and very sexy field of epigenetics.
And here it is. Right. Now, this thing here is a strand of DNA. DNA, of course, you remember, is like a long necklace with four colored beads in, and the order of beads matter. That's the code. It's wrapped around these, uh, these uh, uh, proteins called histones. And on these things, there are certain little sites which here are not occupied with anything, but can be occupied by a methyl group. And those of you who want like chemistry, that's a methyl group. Now, what, what that happens is called methylation. What that happens is two things. First of all, the DNA changes its shape like that, but much more interestingly, it stops working. So that gene suddenly doesn't work. Now, how can that happen? Well, it can happen as a result of an environmental event. In this case, this is a rat. Now, rat mothers, like human mothers, vary in how good they are. Some rats are very good, and as soon as their little ones stray around the nest, they pick them up and bring them back. Other mothers are a bit more nonchalant, you know, and don't look after them. They don't lick them so often, they don't look, look after them so well, don't care for them so well. When they grow up, those little baby rats show a marked difference in stress responses. The ones with the poor mothers have an increased stress response. They also have an increased methylation of this gene. The important thing is that this methylation can last a lifetime. Now, two big questions here. How does the brain know? How does that gene know about the mothering? What's the link between the mother, her, her mothering capacity, and what happens in the brain? We don't know. Secondly, can we undo this? In other words, if, if, this, is, if this is a deleterious uh, event, can we undo it? Not so far. But that's where epigenetics is going at the moment. Fascinating area. Okay. Third thing which predisposes you, so that's, that's uh, early environment and, and, and epigenetics. The fourth, or wherever I got to, number is gender. Bad news for ladies in the audience. One in four of all women have a diagnose, have an episode of clinical depression, which is a very frightening statistic, but it's true, whereas only one in eight or ten men do. Why? Well, <clears throat> here are the possibilities. Genes. Well, we don't know about this, but of course, as you know, females have two X chromosomes and males only have one. Is this a factor? We don't know. Early adversity. Well, it's not, that's not different in, in males and females, but can we counter, can we recognize people who are, who are permanently disabled or permanently damaged by early adversity and do anything about it? Not so far. But once you understand the mechanism, you begin to look at, 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 at a remedy. High levels of cortisol. Well, as I've said to you, women do have high levels of cortisol, and that, we think, might push them a little bit nearer to the precipice of depression. Life events. Interestingly, interestingly, um, uh, uh, women report more life events than men. Now, big argument about this, which uh, I'm sure all the feminists will love to join in. Do women really have a rougher time than men? Yes. Or are they simply more sensitive to adversity? Possibly. We haven't decided that yet, but the fact... <laughs> yes, I'm on dangerous ground here, I recognise that. Um, <laughs> But the, the, fact is, the fact is that women do respond, do have more life events, they have higher cortisol, and they have different genes. Now, we don't know whether any of this combination is actually increased depression. The last thing I want to say about depression is this. I've been talking about it as if it's a single illness. It's not. It's not. 
we now know from a variety of, of chemical and biochemical and neurological and indeed uh, uh, psychiatric uh, 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 bits of evidence that depression is not a single illness. So we have another complication here. Are there different sorts of depression and do different sorts of stress increase different sorts of depression? And the big problem here is we have no idea what happens in the brain in depression. Do I have another minute or I finished? I finished. While you're alive, uh, uh, well, on safe training, we, we've got lots and lots of things there. We Thank have. you very much, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Cortisol, depression, genes, epigenetics, sex politics. So nothing much to think about for questions there. Maybe we can eke one or two out of that. Julie, do you want to take on the... Um, uh, the discussion with childhood and, and stress. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about the interaction between psychosocial factors and psychosocial stress and health across the whole lifespan. Uh, so one of the questions I want to think about is, can stress actually be good for you? There's a lot of bad press about stress, and obviously stress can, is um, very frequently negative, but can it be good for you? So just bear that in mind. Now, if you think about um, the early years, they have a huge impact on your, your health trajectory right across the lifespan. So there's almost an exponential um, increase. That the early years have this much greater effect. And by early years, I mean childhood and adolescence. But what can be done about that? Well, stress, as Joe mentioned, is this interaction between the person and their environment. And we can categorize stress in all these sorts of different ways, whether they're major life events, minor life events, daily irritations and hassles. And we might say stress is mild to severe or tolerable. Sometimes to um, stress can be tolerable, but then it may be the other extreme. It may be toxic, it might be acute or chronic. So we can categorize it in all these sorts of different ways. But whichever type of stress that you're talking about, there are four characteristics, four um, characteristics that really define stress. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, the first of those is un something being unpredictable but also something being uncontrollable, having an element of social evaluative threat, social judgment, and also time pressure. So if you've got a, an, an event that combines all of those, you're going to feel really stressed in whatever degree. And whilst we categorize stress in those sorts of ways of major and minor life events and, and hassles, the current thinking is really that stress is much more like a mosaic. And you have all sorts of stresses thrown at you at once. Stresses happen simultaneously. And you can have compound stresses. So you know the old adage, it never rains, but it pours. Once one stressor happens, all these other things tend to happen. So stress is a, more like a mosaic. It's one way of thinking about it. And we've already heard about the epigenetic um, aspect of the environment and genes. Well, the um, ORCID gene hypothesis proposes that some children... Um, are actually more vulnerable than others um, to stress. So some children, um, they can flourish, they can be resilient and do very well, but only if they're in a very enriched and supportive environment. 
And at the other end of the extreme are resilient children, uh, the, what is known as the dandelion children, who can uh, flourish in whatever circumstances. And obviously, most people are somewhere in between rather than one extreme, but it's, it's a good comparison. And as a psychologist, we're interested in what these resilience factors are that help children cope so that we can perhaps intervene and promote um, coping and improve health. So another way of thinking about, about stress, then, is adaptability. There, I won't bore you with too much theory about stress, but just to say there are two important concepts within stress, and these are the concept of allostasis and allostatic load. Now, allostasis is the stability through change. As Joe was talking about, with these different types of stresses, stress can be physical as well as psychological, and it's a psychological stress that triggers a physical response or physiological response. And the greater amount of change that you, you need, and the greater adaptability, um, comes at a cost. So you can actually adapt to a great number of different stresses. The body is engineered in such a way that you can physically deal with a lot of stresses. But it comes at this cost, and that's your accumulated um, lifetime stress or your allostatic load. And the way that your physiological stress response system becomes set early in life may mean that you need greater or lesser amounts of adaptability and generate um, greater or lesser amounts of um, lifetime stress. And that seems to be what's associated with health. So if we think about um, stress in the context of development, um, there are a number of changes, developmental changes that are, are going on. You've got biological maturation, where there's a development of the immune system and the development of endocrine hormone systems. And these are all part of the stress response system. And there's cognitive understanding that's developing, language development. If you can't understand how to cope with something, then it's more difficult to, to know what to do. Attachment and learning are developing, and social relationships are very important, we know, in protecting you against stress. So whilst the stress is ongoing, within childhood and adolescence, you've got this backdrop or this context of these developmental changes. And what I'm really interested in is how the physiological system or stress response systems can become set at an early age, which may then influence this health trajectory. Now, there are two, there are many, many um, different types of ways to look at stress in children. But there are two particularly good paradigms uh, that have been looked at in the literature, There's looking at childcare and also starting school. So I'm briefly going to mention those two. Um, this is some work um, done by some very prominent um, authors, researchers, and you can see that this is comparing childcare experiences. So those Children who are looked after in uh, either a large centre-based childcare arrangement or more like a child mind, a small group, and comparing good quality and poorer quality daycare. This is an American study, so um, nursery care, we would call it. And as you can see, um, as, as Joe mentioned, cortisol is, is essential to life. And also what we find across the day is that there's a natural rhythm of a high cortisol level in the morning declining steeply across the day. And that's a good response. That's, that's, what, that's a normal, natural response. So as they found here, the, you can see the children in the uh, smaller group care of good quality. You can see that their declining cortisol across the day was nice and steep. That's, that's a good response. That would be associated with better health. 
In fact, it's even uh, steeper than you see in the control group of children who didn't, have, um, didn't go to childcare. Um, so you can see here that actually childcare wasn't a bad thing if it was of good quality. And in work that I've done previously, we've looked at children transitioning to school. So that's a natural, normal stressor, transitioning to school. And you would expect to see a cortisol response. In fact, you want to see a, an acute response to starting school, an increase in their cortisol levels. Um, because that indicates much more adaptation. Uh, children were in the study for up to a year. And you can see here that uh, they had a rise in cortisol um, in their mean cortisol as they went to school, as you'd expect, and then uh, quite a, a dramatic, significant adaptation, which is also good, um, within the first six months. So this is a good response. We weren't saying that children shouldn't go to school, that they should be protected and bubble-wrapped and always you know, stay at home and never, never interact with teachers or, or other children. In fact, this was good. We expect to see this response. And when we looked at physical health, what we found was that those children who had a higher cortisol level when they transitioned to school were actually the ones who were less likely to become ill across the next six months. So in that respect, um, within this healthy population, acute stress, um, within the normal ranges of cortisol, you, you can see that um, stress was actually quite good for children in terms of their physical health. Okay. So another way that we, have look, we look at, as psychologists look at stress, is to not just look at stress naturalistically in the real-world environment, but to take that into the laboratory and look at experimental stress in the laboratory. And this is a, a typical paradigm. This one is just a mock-up, but this is a typical paradigm where you would have two... These are the experimenters, the panel, where they would put the participant in front of them and they would ask them to do a, a talk. They'd put a camera in their face and get them to do a talk. And also a maths task, a serial subtraction. Some of you may have done this as, as um, participants. And this reliably in adults produces a stress response. And we can look at all sorts of things such as how different individual differences contribute to that stress response and also um, different coping mechanisms. Now... In children, so this works in adults, but in children, the, the results are less conclusive. Some studies have found increasing in cortisol and other allostatic markers, um, but not all studies. And one of the reasons, I think, for this is because most all of the studies, um, until recently, were for children were using an adult panel. So in order to stress children, they would use an adult panel. Whereas often the stresses for children within their environment, remember that stress is a, an interaction between the person and their environment, a lot of the stresses for children seem to be from their own peer group, from school, from their friends. So what we did um, was to change this, and we actually put children on the panel as the experimenters. Uh, we filmed this, otherwise it would be impossible to repeat identically for, for each um, each trial, um, and what we found um, was that, as you'd expect, this um, line here, you can see children increase in response to stress and then decrease, but we actually found three groups of children, um, and we interviewed them afterwards, and we said, what did it feel like to be, to be put through that uh, paradigm? Um, what was your experience? 
And what they told us in interview uh, was very, very eloquent. They were able to tell us exactly um, in line with the cortisol results. Obviously, they didn't know their cortisol results, and neither did we at that point. But what they told us, whether that they felt stressed and then they felt better, uh, that actually they didn't find our, our silly test very stressful at all, and they were really cool and too cool for school, um, or that they felt stressed and they still felt stressed afterwards, even during the, the, the debrief session. See, they didn't, feel, they didn't feel stressed by the time they left the laboratory. I'd just like to make that point. Um, so what we found, that children are actually not only truthful, but they have a very good insight into what their own stress responses are. You don't find the same when you, you ask adults. Adults generally, you see this, the cortisol um, hits, hits the roof, whereas they'll say, no, I was fine, I didn't feel nervous at all. <laughs> okay. So what about longer-term um, effects of early stress? It's all very well to look at starting school, childcare, putting people in, in the lab, but what about these longer-term effects and much more severe stressors? Well, we know that these early life experiences can have negative effects on health if you project forward in, in young adults, in middle-aged men and women, in, also in the elderly across a whole range of different physical um, conditions, from um, cardiovascular conditions um, up to um, different pain conditions. But we also know that if you can intervene at different points here, you may be able to reverse that damage, and the negative effects aren't necessarily the ones that are going to, to uh, be borne out. So negative effects um, are not necessarily permanent if there's this supportive, enriched environment, depending on the stressor. Obviously, if it's from very severe stressors, that's, not, um, that's going to have more of an effect. And also, there's evidence that moderate life adversity shows um, a better performance in those sorts of social stress testing compared to severe people who children who've been um, under severe stress or those who, have, even in the control group, who have had a normal amount of stress. So moderate, moderate stress seems to be um, actually good for performance. And before I finish, I just wanted to mention one other aspect. So up until now, I've been talking about childhood stress and childhood and adolescence. But of course, we know that um, the story starts way before then, during pregnancy. And there's um, work that's looked at the positive effects of increasing your child's brain capacity and cognitive abilities before birth. But in terms of physical health, there's also a lot of work that has looked at the negative effects on a child's health, on the birth outcomes, and on their subsequent health. But there's also hidden in the literature, because we, we tend to look at more negative health outcomes, but hidden in the literature is also some evidence that some children actually uh, become more resilient because of stress during pregnancy. And there's evidence for um, a greater body weight and length at birth. Even though children may be born earlier, they have physiologically uh, become more resilient um, in the womb, if you like. Okay. So in summary, there's a whole life cycle of stress, and I've um, spoken about how prenatal, childhood, and adolescent stress can have a really significant effect because of the, level, the different levels of development that are occurring. But um, in, paradoxically, uh, moderate amounts of stress, I'd argue, can be, um, can be very protective and facilitate that, the development of resilience. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you.
Thank you, Julia. I, I, it's obviously emerging in my mind what uh, what stress is. It's, it's not just a concept. Right? It's, I think it's what we call a super concept. It applies to so many things. Pregnancy, adolescence, childhood. Is it good for you? Uh, Long-term effects. Um, I've got a feeling that question time might run on. Uh, from first day at school to first day at Guantanamo. I guess it's kind of similar. Shane? Thank you. Uh, so... Uh, thank you for the chance to come and speak to you tonight. I'm going to talk about two things. One is, is a, a really a difficult and quite abhorrent topic, uh, which is the topic of torture. Uh, and I'm also going to talk about the neuroscience of interrogation. And these two things are linked. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of caveats. First of all, torture is not a neuroscientific concept. It's a human rights concept. It's a legal concept, philosophical, ethical, or whatever you want to, to make of it. But in neuroscience, we're well used to the idea of talking about stress. We're talk used to talking about stressors, anxiety states, uh, impulse states of pain, all of these kinds of things. And those kinds of states that are imposed in torture uh, map reasonably well onto the kinds of things that we understand that happen in the brain as a result of, of these stressors. So I'm not going to talk any morality at all here tonight. Uh, the analysis is entirely consequentialist. So I'm not a Kantian as far as this talk is concerned. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with an assertion, uh, you'll have to take my word for it, uh, that there is no reliable historical evidence for the efficacy of torture in this particular case, which is as a veridical human information gathering practice. Um, there is plenty of cherry-picked anecdotes, but there is no reliable body of evidence that shows that torture is a good way to gather reliable information from other human beings. Um, there are, and there's lots and lots of historical evidence for this. This is a quote from Bonaparte from 200 years ago. Uh, you can get similar quotes from George Washington, uh, from Lincoln, from lots and lots of other authors. Um, uh, Bonaparte puts it very simply. It has always been recognized that this way of interrogating men by putting them to torture produces nothing worthwhile because the poor brutes will tell you whatever uh, they want to make the pain stop. The uh, modern historian of torture is uh, Darius Rajali. Uh, this book is an amazing book. Uh, it's a very depressing and a very uh, sad book to read, but it's, it's well, well worth reading, Torture and Democracy. And in this book, Rajali makes the case that democracies have never given up torture entirely, that they resort to it under times of stress. And uh, when you survey uh, the archives of democracies and other states that have engaged in torture, you never find anything like this. There are no reports of its effectiveness, and people who believe in the effectiveness of torture uh, need no proof and leave no reports. A really, really remarkable claim, but these do not exist when you go and look in the archives. They may have been destroyed in every country that he has investigated, which is about 160 countries, or they don't exist. I think it's the latter. They don't exist, and they don't exist for a reason that I'll elaborate towards the end of the talk. Okay, now this is the point that I want to get to. If torture is this, it's the attempt to force uh, information from the unwilling. It has to be this. It's the effort to force information from the brain systems of the unwilling. It can't be anything else. It, mu it is that by definition. Um, and this is the kind of information you want, declarative information, facts, events, knowledge of the world, these kinds of things. And we know which bits of the brain do these, the medial temporal lobe at the side of your head. And this is the place where government theories uh, government policy documents, uh, things like the torture memos, interface with what we know about brain function. 
Now, what does the brain do? Well, you've got, I'm sure, a good native sense of what the brain does. It's responsible for keeping us alive. It's responsible for our mood, our motivation, vegetative functions, cognition, our ability to think, our ability to behave through time. And the theory goes that if we take somebody who is unwilling to speak and we impose a supervening stressor state, uh, hunger, thirst, cold, you name it, cold, heat, fear, anxiety, predator stress, uh, physical assault, a state of pain, whatever, Somehow, over time, and when you look at the, what has been done, it's always a prolonged period of time. Peer, uh, we're looking at months, uh, weeks, uh, and periods of time like that. Not minutes, not hours. Um, that somehow this will force the release of veridical information from long-term memory. In other words, information that faithfully describes what it is that the person knows. Now, we can go to the literature and ask in a variety of different populations, patients, uh, military personnel, uh, volunteers, a whole variety of individuals, what the effect of these supervening stressors are on motivation, on mood, cognition, whatever. You have to hope it's positive if you're a torturer. You have to. Uh, at best, you hope it's neutral. At worst, it will be negative. And we can ask quantitatively what happens when these states are imposed on individuals. Uh, now, here's just a, a simple example. You don't need to look through all the data here. This is a study uh, of soldiers engaged in simulated combat. Uh, they've been starved, they've been sleep-deprived, they've been liquid-deprived uh, over a period of 48 hours. And every measure of psychological state, from simple reaction time uh, through to mood, through to their ability to remember simple events that happened to them just two days previously, is degraded, and degraded really, really dramatically. Uh, these are uh, Special Forces soldiers from the US. Um, this is something I'm sure you've all heard of. Uh, waterboarding became a verb about 15 years ago. Um, and uh, this is a description of what waterboarding is from the torture memo that John Yu wrote. Uh, in this case, the individual is bound on a, an inclined bench. Uh, their feet are bound. And uh, you place a cloth over the face. And you pour water on the person uh, while they're breathing. And uh, you have this amazing phrase that the, uh, this effort, plus the cloth, produces the perception of suffocation and incipient panic, the perception of drowning. Now, you are actually drowning because the partial fraction of air in the lungs is blocked by the inflow of water into the oropharynx. So by definition, you are drowning because you cannot breathe through the nose or uh, the mouth. Uh, we actually know what this position is. It's a surgical position, which is no longer used. It's the Trendelenburg position because it's extremely dangerous. Uh, people die in this position. It was used, devised originally for hypoperfusion of the brain, a condition where people uh, didn't have sufficient blood flow around the brain. Uh, we know actually, surprisingly, uh, a lot about what happens to people under conditions of water-induced stress. Why do we know this? Because there's a very large literature on the physiology of diving. Um, it goes back over 100 years, and this is somebody who agreed to allow themselves to uh, have whole body immersion in an ice cold water tank, uh, which is a, again a very common method uh, used for torture. And uh, you get changes in heart rate, you get a, a sudden slowing in the heart, this is uh, bradycardia, and then a sudden jump in heart rate, uh, uh, tachycardia. And I'm sure you'll all have heard anecdotal stories of people having heart attacks from being exposed to cold water. This is what happens. Uh, breathing, in this case, 
the person was only able to withhold uh, their breath for around 10 or 12 seconds. So this is a volunteer, not somebody who's having it forced upon them. Um, this is an example of uh, uh, a description of somebody being waterboarded in Siena. This is a picture of a woodcut that I took. And uh, this is uh, the description. Um, the terror of drowning, endlessly repeated, is an agonizing torment, and uh, it causes unimaginable anguish and all the rest of it. Now, what happens in more recent times? Well, here are some examples uh, from the Senate torture report that was released two years ago. So Abu Zubaydah was uh, waterboarded 183 times uh, at 20 to 30 minutes a time. And uh, in his case, uh, it induced convulsions and vomiting. He became completely unresponsive with bubbles rising through his open, full mouth. And, amazingly, they extracted precisely no useful information. Um, uh, but rice and beans that he had uh, eaten 10 hours previously uh, did come back up. Really remarkable. Oxygen deprivation, we know a lot now about the physiology of oxygen deprivation. A plastic bag is a very, very good way of, of torturing somebody who's tied in a chair. Uh, air hunger is possibly our most fundamental metabolic drive. Without air, our, every cell in our body uh, will die quickly. Uh, if you ask people to voluntarily uh, withhold their breath uh, uh, to exhaustion, what do you find? Joe mentioned the amygdala. You get a very strong activation in the amygdala, which is associated with uh, fear and anxiety uh, responses. Um, if you experimentally reduce the amount of oxygen, this is a, a specimen result. Uh, think of uh, somebody climbing up a, a mountain and they're, they're suffering from altitude sickness because they've got hypoxia. Uh, there's, you can do this in the lab, and this is how you do it. You get somebody to wear a mask, and uh, you reduce the fraction of oxygen uh, so from 20%, which would be normal, maybe down to 15 maybe to 12 maybe to 10%. Um, and you ask them to do a variety of tasks. And this is what you find. Every aspect of your perceptual life changes and changes for the worse. People report they're tired, they lose coordination, their vision becomes dim, uh, they become weak, they feel sick, they feel faint, all of these kinds of things. Every aspect of cognition that you can measure degrades as well. Uh, people's cognition becomes worse. So their ability to remember information that they've previously learned is degraded dramatically, by, in this case about 30 to 40 percent. Uh, their ability to respond quickly is degraded. Their ability to think, a measure of executive function, uh, again degraded uh, quite dramatically. You shouldn't be surprised by this, but uh, torturers, I think, always are. Sleep deprivation is another very common form of torture, and uh, there's a very large literature on the effects of sleep deprivation, which I won't go into. I just want to show you the single specimen result. Sleep deprivation is very commonly used in police stations as a method to get people to confess to crimes uh, they may not have committed those crimes, uh, but it's, it's very, very common worldwide. So if you bring somebody to your lab um, and uh, you uh, get them to uh, participate in what's ostensibly a sleep deprivation study, uh, and you bring them back and uh, they either get sleep or they don't get sleep, and then in the morning uh, a false allegation is made against them. So there's an ethical issue about these studies, but we can set that to one side. The allegation is that they've broken a piece of computer equipment. What you find is that people who are very sleep-deprived are about three times as likely to admit to something that they didn't do uh, compared to somebody who has uh, slept normally. And this is in a, a very low-pressure situation where you're in a university lab. It's not in a, a situation where you're uh, imprisoned in a, in a jail cell. 
So, come back to my question. Does torture work? Um, I won't say that it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. What I will say is this, that the signal-to-noise ratio is astonishingly low, uh, and the false positive rate is astonishingly high compared to other non-coercive methods of interrogation. And this is why there are innocents all over the world who have been convicted on the basis of confession evidence. Um, torture is great if you want confessions. Uh, if you want to force people to repudiate a political stance, a scientific stance, it's really, really super. But if you want to gather reliable information, it's about the worst method possible. And field studies of experienced interrogators will show you that they all repudiate it as useless uh, as a veridical information gathering practice. Okay, so let's just, I'm going to skip on a few slides. Um, I just want to talk about a few other aspects of, of uh, our pervasive interactions with each other, the self-reporting, conversation, those kinds of things. It turns out that if you listen to people in cafes, out in the wild, in the field, uh, about 40% of what people say to each other involves self-disclosure. Put that a different way. We like talking about ourselves. Don't be surprised by that. You shouldn't be. Uh, even more interestingly than that, if you put people in a brain scanner and you ask them to engage in either personal disclosure or disclosure about famous third parties, this is what you get. You get a very strong activation in the brain's reward system when you're talking about yourself, but not when you're talking about somebody else. <laughs> I think that's a good clue where interrogation is concerned. And people will do this even to the extent that it will cost them money. Um, so they will gain lesser monetary reward during acts of voluntary self-disclosure compared to uh, uh, talking about somebody else. So we like talking to, about ourselves, even if it costs us money. Okay, so um, there is a new science of de slowly developing of human information gathering. Um, it's, uh, it's a big problem for uh, the behavioral and brain sciences, but it's one that, the, that uh, it can be solved. And uh, it's one that's very important because law enforcement agencies engage in practices uh, which are, shall we say, behind the curve in terms of what is required to gather information reliably uh, from individuals. Um, we now know a lot about what makes a good interrogator. And these are the kinds of things, I'm not going to go through the list here, but uh, one of the things that uh, they need to be is to be a very good actor. They need to be, have high levels of impulse control. They need to be very, very good at perspective taking, and in particular being able to take the perspective of the individual uh, that they're talking to. And those kinds of variables are actually ones that have been sitting in psychology uh, for about the past 50 years in, in areas like clinical psychology and also in psychiatry and clinical psychiatry, having a very good uh, bedside manner. Um, it is often said that uh, in times of great stress, people will say, we are going to have to torture these guys, uh, whoever these guys, and it's typically guys that get tortured. Um, but interrogators will say this re repeatedly, that interrogation should not be left to amateurs, uh, because amateurs do not know uh, what they're doing. And at the moment, we do not have, but it is being slowly put together, an experimental social psychology and an experimental cognitive neuroscience of interrogation. Um, and this leads to a challenge, because institutions, uh, law enforcement institutions, the law... Uh, intelligence agencies and others have to change what they do uh, in order that the science, the ethics, and the policy are all lined up together. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Shane. I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked at the kinds of person who only talks about themselves 40% of the time. I don't know who they might be. Um, extremely important work. I, I, hand on heart, uh, uh, at risk of embarrassing Shane, I do think that, that Why Torture Doesn't Work was the most important science book of, of 2015 uh, because it took that amoral stance and asked the question, is it a good thing to do if you want uh, uh, information? So um, we've had a, a really huge span of, of, of things given to us, uh, and now we come to the important part of the evening where you put these three people to the stress test. First question. Uh, thank you for a wonderful discourse. Um, if I've understood and extrapolated correctly, can we ascribe our different responses to stress to changes in the genetics of our mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers due to stresses in their lives that cause their genes to change? Epigenetics. Um, <laughs> the Joe Herbert, reading it's a, epigenetics. It's a fascinating <laughs> question because what you're asking is, do you inherit epigenetic markers? The answer to that is probably no. Now, there's a problem there because... Whilst during the um, formation of, uh, of eggs and sperm, most of the markers are removed, so you start with a clean sheet. However, there are people, and there are some evidence, that some of them are not removed. So you may inherit a bit of what your grandma or your ma went through. A gentleman called Dr. Lamarck said that many years ago, <laughs> and no one believed him. But, you know, he's coming back into fashion very slightly. Yeah, from a sort of psychological and psychosocial point of view, there is quite a lot of work looking at intergenerational transmission of stress. Um, the degree to which that is a genetic component, I, I, I couldn't say, um, but there certainly is evidence um, of people, for example, who have survived the Holocaust and looking at the adult um, children of those people, and they also have altered cortisol levels. Yes. Um, oh, but as to why, that, that, that is still really a mystery. Yes. Thank you. We've got one question here, and then a second question there. This is one for uh, Julie. It's about the section of your talk when you... I'm here. Sorry, you're struggling <laughs> okay. to see me. Um, the, uh, where you were talking about the different uh, stress responses to different levels or qualities of childcare. For the rest of your talk, uh, I understood that most often the level of cortisol was more or less associated with the level of stress, more stress, more cortisol. In that particular chart, if I read it correctly, the worst form of childcare resulted in the least cortisol in the morning, but more or less the same amount of cortisol in the afternoon, and that was deemed to be a bad thing. So in that instance, more stress equaled less cortisol. So it, that seemed to be different to what was being reported um, in, in the other slide. So I, didn't, I, I got a mm. bit confused as to why that might be the case. That's a good point. The, um, the, it can be the case that lower levels of stress are associated with particularly extreme... Sorry, lower levels of cortisol are associated with extreme levels of stress. But in that particular study, it's really looking at the decline across the day, not so much where the individuals are starting... Um, in, in the morning, or that could be a, a, you know, a, different, a different question, but um, it's the decline across the day that they were really looking at. So it doesn't necessarily matter if the levels are lower on awakening, but it's they, they need to decline across the day. So there'll be in, differences across individuals, 
Um, so that's why just taking one measure where you, you just compare cross-sectionally doesn't tell us too much. We need to compare across the day, uh, for example, in, in that case. Um, that particular study, it was the increases across the day that were particularly damaging. Um, a question for Julie. Um, you said that children have very good insight into the stress levels that they're experiencing, whereas um, adults don't. Um, and in a research environment, obviously part of the problem might be um, demand characteristics or social desirability bias. Do you think adults genuinely use that ability to have insight into their stress levels, or if you're able to design you know, a perfect experiment, they would show insight into their stress? Um, I think there are two things. Maybe they, they partly lose that insight because they think that they're coping very well. Um, because of the experience of um, coping. Uh, but also, I think, in that situ those situations, experimentally, they don't want to admit to the... Sorry, I can't see where... Ah, yes. Um, they don't necessarily want to admit to the experimenter that they were feeling um, stressed. So there's, there's a bit of bias in, in that sense. Could I chip in and ask you, is there a gender difference in this? I expect males to be much less... <laughs> We're all interested, Joe. I, I'm trying to recover myself from earlier on. <laughs> um, males are much less uh, willing to admit stress than women. Is that true? Well, in that social stress situation in the laboratory, mm. men, in their in cortisol levels increase much, to a much greater degree than yes, women. Found, but yes. I just... Um, anecdotally, I would say men are less likely to um, admit to finding it stressful, particularly to a female experimenter. This is the Too Royal sure. Institution. It runs on evidence, and she said anecdotally. <laughs> Hi, thank you um, very much. This is for um, the, gen the first gentleman. Um, in one of his um, slides, he had mentioned that cortisol inhibits the formation of new nerve cells uh, in the brain. I was just wondering, number one, how? And also, when you're under a lot of stress, have they done any studies for behavior? If you've been under a lot, a lot of stress for a long time, uh, does that mean with the less nerve cells, I'm not a science person, but I mean, does that lead to some sort of disease? Yes, the part of the brain we're talking about is called the hippocampus, and it's, I haven't mentioned it so far because it's too much in 15 minutes, but it's part of the brain we're particularly concerned with uh, forming new memories and of um, uh, remembering things like w where things are. For example, there was a famous study a few years ago which showed that London taxi drivers had particularly big hippocampi because they had to learn their way around London. This was the day before Saturnav, of course, when they had to spend two years doing, doing things called the knowledge, which they had to pass an exam. It now, wouldn't work with Uber drivers, I'm pretty sure. Wouldn't work with Meana, I'll tell you. Now, what happens, the extraordinary thing about the hippocampus is, and it is very extraordinary, is that unlike nearly all the rest of the brain, it goes on making new nerve cells in adult life in you, as well as rats and mice, as has been demonstrated in humans. That's completely against what we thought 20 years ago. When I was a medical student, 100 years ago, the, um, uh, I was taught that the brain never made new neurons. And that was really a, 
an inheritance from a very famous uh, neuro, uh, neuro, uh, neuroscientist called Ramani Kahal, who more or less founded neuroscience in the early part of the late part of the, of the ninth century. And he said, the brain can never make new neurons, they can only die. And that was believed until about 1970 or 1980, when two parts of the brain, and the hippocampus is one, were found to be... Now, one of the things that cortisol does is it stops that stone dead. And you can demonstrate that very clearly. Does that matter? We don't know that. The reason being is that in human beings, you can't actually see this process in the living brain. Our scanning techniques aren't good enough. What you can do is see it in post-mortem brain. It's a bit late to ask them about memory by then. And you can ask them, you can, of course, do it in, in rats. In rats, it does make a difference. You can, uh, you can demonstrate certain deficits in memory, particularly, for example, um, differentiating uh, um, two sorts of closely linked memories, which rats can do rather well. If, if you uh, reduce this process, which is called neurogenesis, they do it less well. But it's a fascinating area. It's also been, been associated with the development of depression. Because one of the things that the drugs used for depression do, SSRIs like uh, Prozac, is increase neurogenesis markedly. And people have wondered whether that's the reason why they act as antidepressants. But it's still subject to speculation. Um, i just maybe add something to what Joe has said, uh, which is that in addition to tissue loss in the hippocampal formation, you get tissue growth in the amygdala. Uh, it actually gets larger in size, uh, which means that uh, people who are subject to stress uh, show this characteristic uh, syndrome that is associated with hypervigilance and fear uh, responses to in relatively innocuous stimuli in the environment. And you also get a, a remarkable phenomenon in the frontal lobes where metabolically their activity tends to drop, um, which makes good sense because people are uh, under high conditions of stress are not so good at forming intentions and interrogating their own memories. Just well, we, to add to that, if I may, um, Shane's talks, this is a very interesting point because he's demonstrated there are various ways which the brain can change. The amygdala doesn't make new neurons, but it changes connections, the same with the frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. So the brain is very plastic, but plastic in different ways. Uh, we have one question from the gods, and then we have uh, one, two, three down, down here. Well, very quickly, I've lived in South Africa, especially in 1996, 1997, and 2000, after apartheid, and I've been with the ANC from 1976, where a lot of children were tear-gassed and slaughtered, and they had dogs set on them and all sorts of atrocities. I'm just wondering if that was part of an experiment of some type. And I've seen the effects of people who have been in solitary confinement for very long periods of time. I'm just wondering what was the point of it all, for the minority to rule the majority, but to go on for so long and to be so horrendous. I, I think the, the point of, of, of Shane's work and Shane's book is, is that there is, there is no, no, no point. There would be no advantage for those people, no information gained from those people. And, and one of the things I, I, I think that's worth mentioning, Shane didn't mention it in his talk, is, is the effect that torturing has on the torturers. Uh, they suffer a great deal of, of, of PTSD and readjustment uh, uh, problems because they're not immune, once, especially once they leave that supportive en uh, en environment. <coughs> Uh, I, I think that's what I, I, would, I would say to that question. It's a shame you haven't got Archbishop Tutu here. It's, that, that, that is a shame. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely uh, a, a share. I'd give him a book anyway. Uh, so we have, we have two questions. We have one, three questions. One here. If you modify genes, will you be able to modify the amount of stress a human can take before they kind of start getting extremely uncomfortable? Yes. <laughs> what, what, what did you have in mind? What, what, you're, you're sat in between your parents. What's going wrong? <laughs> Did you have a, th a specific kind of thing in mind, like sports or stress or exams? No? <laughs> Thank you. We've got two more questions down here. One here. It's my turn, is it? It is yours. You have the microphone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's the clue. <laughs> well, my, my impression is that uh, you have discussed uh, stress due to um, actual uh, events and states. But um, what about the uh, stress that uh, can come about due to um, uh, non-existent and imaginary states and events? Anxiety, rumination, depression. Hallucinations, you mean? Do you mean hallucinations, or do you mean anxiety states that would cause people to ruminate on stressful situations yeah. over, uh, and, that's, over that's, and over that's again? Not anything that uh, stress that. You imagine yourself without uh, any kind of external evidence. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the reverse of, of one of the things that none of the three speakers have spoken about, which is what would be the remedies for, for some, of the stressful, uh, uh, some of the stressful events that people would go through. Um, and one of, the, one of the remedies in things like CBT would be to imagine uh, yourself coping with stressful situations, minimizing the stressful situations. So I think what you're referring to is the exact opposite of that, overthinking the stressful situations and causing those biological effects that, mm. that would have otherwise be caused by um, external circumstances. Uh, so I think you could apply what you're thinking of to everything as internal torture, if you like, or an internal first day at school, um, uh, which would have exactly the same kinds of effects on the brain as, uh, as real external stress events. And in fact, almost anything that you imagine has the same effects on the brain as things that really happen. So if you imagine throwing a ball, for example, the same parts of your brain are active as if you are really throwing the ball. And if we take it more conceptually, removed from, from physical actions and think about thinking about stressful situations, um, then you would have the same parts of the brain um, um, uh, activated by thinking about stressful situations as you would by actually being in the stressful situations. Yes, if I could add to that. Uh, I, I wish you would. I'm not the expert. <laughs> um, the, as I said, uh, the stress response, the experience of stress, is a neural phenomenon in, in your head. Okay? Uh, yeah. uh, and the cause of that is manifold. Now, it can be actually absent in the same way as a, 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 you can imagine things, have a dream or hallucination, for example. I mean, you think you're seeing me now, don't you? You're not, in fact, at all. What's happening is something happening in your head which is saying, out there, there's a bloke with a white beard I haven't seen before who's talking about stress. Now, for all you know, I'm not here. You're in a dream. Now, if, for example, I gave you a certain drug, I have no idea what that could be. Which you've had. Oh, I've exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, You might imagine someone like me sitting here. I, mean, I probably have, you know, green hair and I don't know, claws and things. So what, what I'm saying is that, that, the, that the experience of stress, the cognitive emotion is always internal. 
and they can be generated by a variety of things. So you're quite right, it could be entirely imaginary. Although, of course, to you it wouldn't be imaginary, it'd be real. A comment in a proposal based on uh, current events. One of the candidates for president of the United States might have benefited, actually, from your talk in that <laughs> he promises, if he's elected, uh, to enhance the kind of uh, interrogation efforts that the CIA and Guantanamo have used. Uh, I doubt that he would have actually learned anything from your talk, but the fact is that is one of his uh, proposals. And in terms of, of a proposal, unhappily, we're going through right now a period of, of maximum stress in many countries of, of very young children, the ones who have been displaced from Syria and other countries, and uh, those who have survived the boat trips. Uh, and this is unfortunately, I mean, it's sort of a, a natural social experiment to look at the extent to which various children exposed to various kinds of extraordinary stressors uh, are able or not able to cope over the next years. And I just you know, wonder whether there's any provision in place to try to, uh, to harness this horrible social experiment that we're witnessing. Is it a research opportunity in a, a dark sense? Mm, um, it certainly is. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any research, at least in the UK, that is, is currently ongoing, but I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, there are research programs that are starting up in that area. Um, and certainly um, previous events that have happened, so 9-11 um, and a you know, number of different terrorist um, events, there, there's quite a lot of research that has looked, for example, at um, women who were pregnant um, at the time of the, the bombing and th those sorts of studies. So, you know, people to... Um, tend to um, go after those those sorts of events. I mean, I mean that in the and, and I think way. Sorry, so, are you going to carry on? No, that's fine. Well, one of the things that's come out of those kinds of studies, 9-11 and uh, Rwanda, for example, is, is that, that frequently um, having an external... Um, uh, cure, if you like, uh, uh, counselling help for the for the stress uh, response too early can have n counter um, uh, counter-effective results as opposed to leaving people for a, a period of, of months while the normal biological responses learn to deal with those those stress responses. And just as a just to clarify as as a point, uh, when you say that one of the candidates wouldn't have learned anything from Shane's talk, was that a comment on the talk or the candidate? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I thought so. So we have a question. Where is the microphone? It's there. Okay. Uh, hi. Thanks very much, first of all. It's been really interesting, uh, everything that you said. Um, I was wondering uh, particularly about depression. Um, depression's been, uh, it's become quite prominent uh, specifically today, and we don't hear much about it in history. Uh, so I was wondering, is that because um, of increased awareness, or is that because in today's society people are more depressed than they were and also what are your thoughts about um, the future? I mean obviously you can't predict the future but um, do, you can, see, yeah. <laughs> do you see uh, depression on the rise? I'm not a psychiatrist I should tell you that. Uh, there is one in the audience actually but uh, um, the, there's a big, that's a big debating point. There's no doubt about it that the prevalence of depression is much higher now than it was say 50, 60 years ago. We also know that even today, in this supposedly developed country, a large proportion of people who are clinically depressed are never recognised as such, are not treated and never get near a doctor. A good example of that is India, 
when I went to India first many years ago, I was told depression didn't exist in India. You know, all that curry in the sunlight. Um, absolutely not true, because of course, if you look carefully, it is just as prevalent as it is here. So it's a matter of reporting and definition. It's our problem. The problem with psychiatric illnesses is that they are all diagnosed entirely on symptoms. And that's a big problem in medicine. If you look back at the history of medicine, um, because symptoms are certainly the thing that matters to the patient, and they're the, the first port, they're the first uh, 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 signpost, if you like, to a doctor for what's wrong. But it mustn't stop there. Uh, uh, and in psychiatry, it has stopped there. But if, for example, if you look at, say, cardiology or cancer or whatever, we all know that now that the initial diagnosis on symptoms is only the prelude for a much detailed investigation with blood tests and radio and, and x-rays and scans and so on. They don't exist in psychiatry. So our definition of depression, indeed any mental illness, is still extremely vague. That's the problem. But, and conceptually, there's an, an interesting, I recommend a book called Crazy Like Us, which is um, from a medical anthropology viewpoint about whether we're exporting our concepts of mental health to the, to, to the rest of the world as well. We had mm. uh, questions on, on this side of the room. Um, you mentioned in your studies on children, that, especially when they were in front of the, um, the board of children, that some of the children developed a resilience to the stress that they were put under. Now, if that is true, that is a very important finding. Would you like to elaborate on that? Mm, well, I wouldn't say they developed a resilience because we weren't repeatedly doing it and looking at it sure. over time. But, but yes, yeah, some of them were more able to cope um, with that. Um, and this was actually a study that's done by one of my PhD students, who I'm sure is here, but I won't embarrass her, um, and she'll be able to tell you more about it. But um, in that study, um, we did look at coping responses, and, and we're currently looking, following up that data, and we haven't um, actually written up that data yet. Um, but one of the things that some of the children who coped better said was that they realised that in that environment, they didn't have any control because remember I said one of the characteristics of stress is lack of control, the ones that realised that they, they didn't have any control, so they stopped trying to control the environment, they just reacted more emotionally, um, those ones seemed to be coping better. So it, it was the fit with the environment, if that answers your question. Well, <laughs> ah. You'll have to wait till the next um, paper comes out. Uh, we'll take man with beard and then lady without beard because you're very close to each other. <laughs> Just to be clear. Um, I had two, actually. One was the relationship between stress, fear, and anxiety. And, um, and the second one was on the torture point. Uh, I was really, I mean, it's interested to see about the, you know, in, ineffective as a way of evoking memory, but I, in a way, having never thought about it before, I would have thought that torture was about overcoming resistance and breaking will rather than somehow evoking memory. Do you mind if we just take the second question? Because there's 15 minutes and lots of other questions, but I think the second question... I was more interested in the second question. <laughs> yeah, um, so here's where the fissure lies. Um, there's no meaningful or useful concept in psychology uh, or in understanding brain function where breaking the will is concerned. Uh, this is a metaphor 
which is utterly and completely useless. It, do, it doesn't map onto anything that we know about how executive functions are realized in the brain. It doesn't map onto anything we know about intentions or any of those kinds of things. And this metaphor is widely employed when you look at policy documents and other things. Uh, but when you actually then go and look at the consequences, uh, when you see whether or not useful intelligence of any description has been harvested, what you find is no. But the, the rationale that's offered, uh, regrettably, by uh, uh, usually uh, uh, amateurs in the area, I'm not, not saying you're an amateur torturer, uh, <laughs> is that what it will do is break the will. So the, the Abu Zubaydah, whom I mentioned there, he was uh, one of the first people who was to be subjected to this program of will-breaking. And uh, his, the, he had been first interrogated by Ali Soufan, who was a, a well-known FBI interrogator who, uh, through building rapport, giving the guy a cup of tea, uh, uh, famously a, a, a can of a, a soft drink or some, of some description, uh, he spoke at length and gave up great volumes of information. Uh, when Mitchell and Jessen, uh, who were the, the two CIA torturers who, who are currently being chased through the courts, in the US arrived on the scene. They came along with this idea that we will break his will, we will get rid of his resistance. Um, and uh, their first estimate was that, well, if we sleep deprive him for up to a month and we, water, uh, we waterboard him for about a month, he will tell us everything we want to know. Then after 30 days, they said, well, actually, we, when we said 30 days, we meant 60 days. Uh, and this is the kind of thing, you get an escalation of the brutality um, because the metaphor that you start with which is that there is a, a wall to be overcome, there's resistance to be broken down, does not map in any meaningful way to any underlying psychological concept. So you have to set it aside as a, a myth propagated by television, um, but it's not something that actually maps to anything real inside the brain. But what you do actually end up breaking is the exact system which you want to retrieve information yeah. from. And that, I mean, yeah. you can't retrieve it. The lady behind you had a question. Hi. Second presentation, it was mentioned briefly that children with lower levels of cortisol in initially starting school had higher risks of having uh, illnesses later, as in like during school. And I assume this is referencing to non-stress-related illnesses. Uh, why is that trend so prominent? Um, well, in that study, we were looking at the common cold and flu, so common uh, acute um, illnesses. It wouldn't necessarily generalise to, to all illnesses. This is just a sort of paradigm for, for illness. Um, and the idea there being that they were those who were more able to mount a stress response seemed to be the ones that were more um, able to, to cope with stress. And those were the ones who were less likely to become ill. I, I like short questions and short answers. I'm getting very stressed now because I keep nodding at people encouragingly and I know that I've already lied to at least one person about taking your question. We're going to take a question from the top there, then we're going to take one from here, then one from there, and then go to the back there, if we can. So a question from the gods. Uh, good evening. Um, in the first talk, uh, cortis uh, we were told that cortisol inhibits the formation of new nerve cells in the brain but that it also reinforces aversive memories. How does it exactly reinforce aversive memories? We're back to the amygdala again, which is what Shane's talking about. That's a, um, um, the area of the brain where particularly fearful or uh, uh, dangerous memories are, are reinforced. And uh, it's thought that cortisol, together with, actually with another compound, noradrenaline or adrenaline in the brain, acts in that area. 
to reinforce that area there. Clearly, biologically, very important. If you, let's imagine, let's go back a few thousand years, shall we, and you're walking through the forest looking for your lunch, which is a deer or something, and you come across a sleeping tiger. Well, now, you want to remember that. You don't go there again. And that's really why uh, a, a, acute, uh, fearful memories are imprinted much better when you're stressed. Try yes. again? Yes. Uh, we've heard that um, a lack of stress or a reduction in stress is good for uh, depression. It's good for uh, bringing up kids, and it's good for getting uh, confessions out of uh, victims. Uh, can can the three people on the panel please give us their best guess at how to redu how to reduce stress? We we know uh, quite a lot about it. Um, First of all, as Joe emphasised, stress is a perceptual phenomenon. It, 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 it's what you're thinking. But if you want to build uh, resilience, there are a couple of things that are really important. Uh, aerobic exercise, and lots of it, uh, is, a, is a universal hygiene where stress is concerned. The other is something that people forget, the best cognitive enhancer we have. Lots of sleep. Good quality sleep at length is a... Okay. A, Julie, what's the best reducer of stress? I would add to those health behaviours by saying social support. That would yeah. be the number one. Joel, best reducer of stress? Well, yes, I don't really. That's good. I mean, yes, I mean, it's attitude, isn't it, really? Um, I, I think one way is to avoid giving talks to the RI would be a good way. <laughs> <clears throat> you do despair of scientists sometimes. I mean, it's sex and chocolate is the answer. I mean, <laughs> and... and uh, and empirical evidence suggests in that order. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, and whatever they said. Uh, where was the next question? It was back there, yeah? Hi, um, two questions. One really, really quick one, I think, and a second one. Can the amygdala shrink back, is the first one, and completely unrelated. Is, um, is there any link between stress and cancer? Uh, so can the amygdala shrink back is actually a really live and important question of the moment. And the answer is we are completely uncertain as to whether it can or not. Uh, in experiments that you can do in uh, animal models, the answer is sometimes, if you get the conditions right. Mm. In humans, uh, it's much less certain. Phenomena like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder are believed to revolve around this phenomenon of amygdala hypertrophy. But uh, experimental demonstrations or empirical demonstrations of its, of its shrinking in humans are few and far between. Uh, so I, I would hold out the hope that the answer is yes, but we don't know yet. I think Joe is going to say something, maybe. So it wasn't the question on cancer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, was, yeah. I'm not talking about cancer. I won't talk about yeah, cancer. Um, is anybody? Are you, Joe, going to talk about I stress and cancer? that one yeah. mm. um, I certainly wouldn't say that stress causes cancer. I'd be very, very cautious of saying anything like that. But there's definitely a role... Um, for stress um, in cancer in terms of onset and progression, there's good evidence that stress has is part of a whole uh, multitude of factors that, that can be associated with it. That's definitely my favourite question so far. This could be the last question that we've got at the, at the back there. Yep. Uh, can mind-body interaction and so stress be changed by employing a different philosophical paradigm to that usually used by the person? What do you mean by a philosophical paradigm? Well, we can control everything. We're above 
all metabolic uh, exchanges within our brain. Uh, we, we can empower ourselves to do things. You know, we're, we're not, okay. not behaviorist models, simplistic behaviorist interactions with the social world. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd be happy to take, take that one. I, I think the idea that we might, there might be something um, above and beyond the, uh, the relationship between the body and the brain, I think all three of us, or four of us, would probably say no, but can we use our, uh, can we use psychological methods and can we use uh, our cognitive skills um, uh, in, uh, to influence interactions between our, our, our brains and our bodies, our brains being parts of our, our, uh, our bodies, then the answer would be yes. And if one wanted to import uh, some kind of, of, of philosophical approach onto that, mindfulness would be um, a, a worthy one uh, and, and, and a one to be taken seriously. But the mechanism, I think, would still be, um, to get back to your question, using... Uh, ways of generating internally uh, those kinds of stimuli which would reduce stress responses rather than, than externally, but something that's outside of the body and the brain, I think we'd all, we'd all suggest no, wouldn't we? We're dyed in the wool monists. Yeah? Yes. Um, we, have, we have two minutes. Uh, if anybody feels supremely, you feel really cheated, I could tell. So you've got the last, last question, um, so don't disappoint me. Right. <laughs> I'll try not to. You mentioned earlier that um, the second generation of Holocaust survivors have higher stress levels and you don't ha not sure why yet. Is that right? That's what the lady said, I think. Yes. That's right, yes. Well, my father's a Holocaust survivor um, and I'm the second generation. Um, and I think it's because of the... My father has had, like, all his life, he's talked to me about he's lost all his family... Um, he gets very, very stressed easily. Um, I, I go to um, a second generation, that Holocaust group, and all of us, it's fascinating because we've all had the same experiences. Like, if my father was sitting next to me now, he would tell me, for goodness sake, keep your head down, don't speak, keep quiet. Because one of the, one of the things, for example, is that he learned to survive. He had to keep his head down. Like, don't keep your head up above the parapet because someone will kill you, you know? And he's always been like that. And that's how I was brought up, which has made it much harder for me to... Uh, that's just one example. So, of course, I've also grown up more stressed. So I, I think what, <laughs> what you're alluding to is the psychosocial environment. Yes. Um, and yes, that most likely is, is the mechanism, um, highly likely. The, the work I was talking about is by Rachel Yehuda, who's a very prominent uh, researcher in the, in the US. So um, there's plenty of work to go and have a look at if you want to, to look at that. Yeah, I didn't know. I will do. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always nice to end on an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> don't mean to trivialise it in any way. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Uh, I, I've learned a lot tonight, and I've, I've read the work of the three people and still learned a, a, a lot. The questions have been uh, fantastic. Joel said earlier on that we weren't going to talk about pain tonight. Uh, we weren't going to talk about pleasure. We are just going to talk about pain. So I think I might be suggesting to Martin that we run one of these on the science of pleasure at some other uh, the day. But for now, could you please thank our three speakers and thank you very much for... That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. 
And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>